Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and this episode, I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with Urs Wittlespark. Urs is one of the co-founders of Partners Group, one of the global leaders in private equity. And it's not often you get a conversation with one of these real leaders in the industry on a global basis who's been involved from building a great business from 1996 through to today to managing $142 billion. Their flagship fund, or one that's most often seen in the Australian market, the Global Value Fund, has performed very well with a 12.1% compound annual growth rate on a 10-year basis with very low volatility. I talked to Urs about why. Why is it he's still flying to Australia to meet with investors and talk to investors when obviously anyone can see that has access to Google, that he's been wildly successful from a financial standpoint? To that end, we actually close off the conversation talking about his family commitment to the Giving Pledge. The Giving Pledge is a charitable organisation or movement founded by Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, where wealthy individuals and billionaires have committed to give over half their wealth away. Urs opens up and talks about how his family views this commitment and also talks about how he's built a great business in terms of the Blue Earth Foundation and other impact investments that are allowing him to produce 10% plus investment returns whilst great social impact outcomes. We talked to Urs about how they've built liquidity into what previously has been thought to be an illiquid asset class in private equity. We talk about private debt and how Urs sees the attraction of private equity-like returns without the volatility. We also touch on PG3, the family office investment of the three founders of Partners Group that have all done exceptionally well. And we talk about how they are investing in royalties and other uncorrelated asset classes. Please remember, this podcast isn't designed to be specific or personal advice. It is recorded for information and entertainment purposes only. People are encouraged to seek advice and also always read any uh, offer documents. Once again, thanks to Josh Clark, the producer at Parakeet Productions, as well as Tom Oriel, who has helped produce the show. You can email me at david.clark at Coda Capital. Please keep the feedback coming. Enjoy the episode. Urs, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I know you, we've had you on the podcast before. It was quite a while ago. And uh, um, it would be beneficial if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, Urs Wittlisbach, founder of Partners Group. Um, Partners Group, I founded it back in 1996, so I got to be pretty old now. Huh? Um, with two of my colleagues, we left Goldman Sachs and we started this private markets firm at the beginning, very, very small today. Fast forward today, we are one of the larger um, private markets as a manager with 150 billion US dollars on a management, 1,900 people working out of 20 offices, so truly global one of the leaders in this market. And uh, I guess what makes us special is that we do very tailor-made products for our clients. We have a lot of mandates with big institutional clients here in, also in Australia, many supranation funds. What we are also known for is that we were the inventor and doing it since 20 years, this so-called semi-liquid um, private equity products, which is in the meantime, 43 billion altogether. So it's sizable. When we started, people were laughing. It's not possible, but we have now proven that these products work and uh, and we, we are glad that we managed them. So we'll get down into the weeds on some of the products and some of the things, but you're right. I've heard so many people over the last 12 months tell me how they're d democratizing private equity, but I think you guys were probably the first at it to actually make this asset class available to a lot of investors that otherwise couldn't do it. And we'll talk about, you know, the 10 year mm -hmm. round trip and why it's not possible, et cetera. But before we do that, I'm, I'm really interested to understand um, 
a little bit about yourself and your background. You talked about you're at Goldman Sachs. Um, yeah, maybe a bit more about my private life. You mean? Well, well, me. well not, not so much, mm. but, but maybe, you know, I don't want to pry, but, but I'm intrigued that obviously you've been a very, very successful person. And, and you've done very well. Congratulations. It's fantastic. It's hugely admirable. What gets you up in the morning? You're based in Switzerland. Um, yeah. What brings you and, and what keeps driving you to want to come to Australia, see investors do these things, um, which obviously, you know, is hard work. Um, but, you know, you, you, yeah, you, I mean, you don't have to work if you don't want to, right? No, I don't have to work. <laughs> so, so what gets you out of bed and what's driving you to do this? No, I mean, I mean, I, I love it to be with clients. Um, it's what I did my whole life. Um, we are doing all of this work for our clients. It's very important. That's why we also do these special structures, do this extra work for the clients. And we not only talk about it, so we mean it as well. Um, like in our, um, uh, we call it the decision room where our um a global investment comedy happens. You will see on the top that everybody sees it. Is that stands? We are responsible for dreams, and what we mean with this is that every of our employee needs to know they don't work for the bonus or for the company or whatever. They work for the clients, and our clients are either pensioners or high net worth people who have worked hard for their money, and uh, we need to make sure that we are able to have great returns, which then are responsible for the right retiree's dreams, right? So, and, and I really believe in this. I think uh, it is, um, it's, an, it's, it's a special task that you have if you manage money for other people. I mean, if I lose my own money, that's fine. Uh, but if I lose it for other people, that's not fine. And every, that's our DNA, a partners group as well. We don't want to lose money. And when you started the business in 96, how did you deal with that relationship or that uh, gravity of managing other people's money? Yeah, at the beginning, when we started, we didn't have a single client. So we walked out <laughs> and we did everything at the beginning. So we, we did M&A. We were selling four companies in the advertisement industry in Switzerland, one for $5 million and the most expensive one, I think, for $40 million. All these people gave us afterwards their money because we did a good job in selling their their assets. And we from Goldman, we knew about stocks and bonds and we wanted to convince them to do stocks and bonds, but they were entrepreneurs and they were like, I mean, that's boring. I don't want to have bonds and stocks. Do you have something entrepreneurial? And that's how we actually started to go into private equity because if you think about it, uh, private equity is as entrepreneurial as you can get because we are the owners. We have 60, 70, 80% of the company. The rest management owns. So, and they have to put up their own money. So, it's all very entrepreneurial. Um, and we call it entrepreneurship at scale. That's kind of what we do. And fast forward today, you talked about some of those numbers. And I, I want to say the funds under advice or management, when we spoke quite a few years ago, was it about 80 million? So, you've you know, 80 billion. 80 billion, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's grown remarkably, um, this success you've had. And if we talk about the the value fund, which um, a lot of people, and I know, um, have exposure to, which is the one which really democratised um, this asset class. And traditionally, it's been an asset class, you've said, which is quite entrepreneurial, but most people have found it hard to access because traditionally you're investing to a private illiquid company. Um, the Therefore, people will traditionally make a commitment of, say, a million dollars to XYZ private, private equity fund that gets called over two or three years. They deployed into the companies. They build those companies up for three or four years, then try to sell them over three or four years. So it might take a 10-year round mm. trip. So to get diversification, to have the sophistication to manage with that, you either need to be an institutional investor or a large family office typically, but you are able to bring um, a product to the market that gave that exposure. Do you want to talk about that product and what it looks like then and what it looks like today? Yeah, I mean, we had this idea because it, it, 
as you, as you have said, a single investment is not liquid. So single private investment is not a public stock. You invest in a company and then three, four, five years later it's sold and then you have a liquidity event. But if you think it through, if you have now a very mature portfolio of such private equity investments, um, let's say 500 companies, and these have been invested over many years, you know, one of the company has been invested four years ago, one mm -hmm. five years ago, then you have constantly liquidity events mm -hmm. uh, because the more the company you invested four years ago is sold this year. So you have a liquidity coming. And if you have now, if you are able to build up a broad diversified portfolio of private investments of complete different vintage years, you constantly have liquidity events. That means you could make uh, such a program as well liquid. Uh, the way that we did it, we built it up. What is important is to build these programs up very slowly. So we started like this whole thing back in 2007 already. So pre-GFC, uh, the very first product we even did in 2001, but the one that we are talking of here uh, started in 2007, very small with 20, 30, 40, 50 million. Today it's eight and a half billion. So mm -hmm. over time it has been grown to be a very large product. Um, and it's possible, so we, we we tell the people you have liquidity on a quarterly basis, up to 5% of the total fund we should be able to do, so up to 20% per year. Um, if everybody runs to the door, to be honest, I mean, nobody of the listeners should think this is completely liquid like a public stock. Um, but so far we went through gfc we went through COVID. covid um we never had to gate this fund actually we gated the fund for 10 years on the way in because there was a lot of demand because we were the only ones who had this the track record is strong you know the last 10 years 12.1 percent uh, for the australian um, feeder it's a good track record, so we had a lot of inflows. And here again, you have to be thinking for the clients again. You cannot take all of this inflow. We were, um, we have rules in place that we don't take more than 20% net per annum. Like in the year 2018-19, we could have doubled this fund every year. So, so how does someone who is a Goldman Sachs salesperson limit themselves in that way? Because... Otherwise, the product long-term is not viable and is not good because normally when investors want to come in is when everything is expensive. Yep. It's when everybody runs into private. Oh, it's great. The returns are great. Fear and greed. People Fear buy everything. They come in and yep. then if you then let the funds double in this year or triple even, then you need to do the investments. You cannot let have the, the cash lying around and then you get a complete over uh, allocation to expensive years. That's why we say 20%. This makes sense as well. You said it before. Normally in private equity, we hold a company for five years. So five years is five years, 20%. Mm -hmm. So over a, an investment cycle, you get nicely 20% every year in an investment cycle. Um, also for the liquidity later on, if you have suddenly too many companies in one year, which then come out once later on, then you have too much liquidity, which you are not. It's These programs are only good if you do this this way. Unfortunately, some of the new entrants, now I, I, I remember back in 2007, 8 or so, when I was talking on conferences about this democratization and making private equity semi-liquid, everybody was laughing saying it's not possible. I mean, we do it now since 12 years more, uh, 16 years. Um, so uh, we have proven it's possible. And since about three years now, many of our friendly competitors come with similar structures. They copy our prospectus, but in the build-up, it's not so easy. And some of them make, in my view, some mistakes, but we will see. Time we will tell. So, so what does the uh, product look like today? You've got some private debt, you've got some secondaries and some uh, primary uh, positions. You want to talk about those directs and also the secondaries and maybe explain to the listeners the difference between them and then also the role of the debt in the portfolio? 
Yeah, maybe let's start with the debt. Is a uh, today I think about fourteen percent, one four of the portfolio. We're building it up because we have, we say, between ten and twenty-five percent. A little bit about the relative value. Mm-hmm. Private debt today is very interesting uh, because the banks are out of this market at the time being. You get double-digit returns expectation, 10, 11, 12 percent with debt risk, much less e- risk equity than like, equity, equity like, like return for debt yeah. risks. That's why we built this more, more. So that's one part of the portfolio. The biggest part, about 60, 60, 68 percent of the portfolio is um, direct equity. So we are parts of your strong, the so-called upper mid-cap market. So these mm-hmm. are companies that we are investing in they are valued between 800 million to 1.2 billion that's so these are like. big real private it's real there's real companies um you have these companies have EBITDAs, maybe starting at 30 million up to 150 million earnings um we have four industry groups we have over 200 investment professionals working out of these 20 offices truly global <clears throat> we have a healthcare team um we have a goods and products, consumer goods and products team. We have a servicing team, looks after servicing company, and we have an IT team. And they are constantly doing what we call thematic research. So they are actually screening markets all over the world. Let's say the healthcare team five years ago in the United States, the the health insurers changed their their rules in terms of physiotherapy. Before, they were not paying for physiotherapy. And five years ago, they changed the rules and said, we pay now for physio. They go even further. They said, you have to do physio first, which which we do in Europe since 15 years. But the Americans have realized this Mm -hmm. about five years ago. Plus, this market is very fragmented. So the top 15 players have only 12% market share. So this is what we have seen top-down, our health coaches said, well, we would love to own a company in a chain, a physiotherapy clinic chain. There was not one up for sale yet, but we dig down and looked at the five largest and the two largest or, or two of the five largest. We worked on them, and then after about 13 months, one of them, Confluent Health, came up for sale. Big auction, but we had, until then, we had the advantage that we have already had 10 manager meetings. We knew everything about this company. This is the big advantage in private equity. You know, you're a legalized insider. We knew everything yeah, about complete No insider trading rules, right? No, you know, we, I mean, it's a private market. We were talking to these managements. We were, that's also important about the managers of our companies are always very well incentivized, meaning we want to see their own money in the company. So the CEO of Confluent Health, he has 90% of his wealth invested alongside us, alongside our clients. Um, and then we usually, we own 70, 80% of it. The rest is the, the management of the company owns it, but with their own money, uh, not some Yep. So my Issue. options, what they get, and then, uh, yeah, and then we knew what we we're gonna do. We knew exactly. We had a we had a business plan to actually roll up to do a buy and build. When we invested, we had uh, around a hundred clinics. Now four years later, we have six hundred and fifty clinics. Some of them organic growth, but a lot of them we bought smaller, called them mom and pop. So somebody had maybe five physiotherapy around Portland or four around Miami, not a natural buyer for such a small one. So we buy them at a much lower multiple, mm-hmm. much cheaper because they're not natural buyers. So we buy left and right. And then we install, we have a digit on the board. We always take specialized operating partners, which is now a Rolodex. These are external people who have been in specific uh industry strong so let's say in a digitalization side um and then we take them in again they put their own money in to be a board member they work maybe 20 30 percent they are not operating but they are implementing together with the management um things to change the company to the better like confluent health is typical one their their patients patient system mm-hmm. administration system but but archived it was kind of excel sheets and we have today the state of the art um 
administration system for the patients, which is very good because you can call them, you can make the right agenda points, you you you, you know the bill is immediately paid out or send out. I mean, it makes these clinics more efficient. It, it's better for the client or for the patient. It's better for the clinic. Um, we needed to spend some money upfront, quite some money to develop the software, but now we have it and now uh, we are much more efficient. And just talk about the secondaries in the portfolio. What are they and how much of the portfolio do they represent? Uh, secondaries today, I guess about 15%. Secondaries is when, as you have said here before, normally big pension plans and insurance groups, they give money to a private equity buyout to KK mm. or to partners group, our call it flagship fund. These are closed end funds. They draw down for three, four years, and then they're going to sell Deploy. the companies yep. over time. And after about 10 years, everything should be back. But during these 10 years, there is no liquidity. Although you cannot sell it except in the secondary market. So mm -hmm. we are a specialized group who are buying. If someone, a new CIO comes into a, an insurance group and he hates, let's say, buyouts in Europe, then he says, ah, I want to get rid of this, whatever funds here. Yes. Then we step in, we buy this fund in the year number four or whatever. Today, you can buy it even at a discount to the net as a value. When, when the markets are hot, then people even pay premiums. So it's an interesting area to get enough diversification again. You know, when you buy another fund, then you have immediately 15 companies that this other fund manager is managing through. Um, again, important for the global value that we have as well, secondary to get enough diversification. And how, how do the valuations that you're seeing now in this sort of risk-off environment of the last 18 months, two years, versus, say, you know, after the global financial crisis, has there been a readjustment in private valuations and therefore a discount in the secondaries that make it a real buying opportunity or has it not come off that much? Um, I mean, after the GFC, that it was really very interesting or during GFC, then you were buying good portfolios at 50, 60% discount. Um, that's you don't have anymore today. So the secondary market you buy maybe now a 10% discount, something which was two years ago, 5% premium. Yes, you buy it a bit cheaper, but it's not like, it's still interesting, but it's not as interesting as it was after the GFC. Okay. And then the other portion in the portfolio is private debt that you spoke about being really interesting with equity-like return mm -hmm. for debt-like risk. I've seen a bit of commentary um, from maybe some bank leaders around the world talking about their concern about the lack of governance around private debt. Do you share that concern? Um, not really. Um, I know that some of the bankers are kind of pointing with the fingers to us private debt managers because they say it's unfair. We banks are completely regulated. But there is a reason why they are regulated because a bank at the end is nothing else than a highly levered hedge fund, mm -hmm. if you think it through. So... They have on the balance sheet, they have a small portion of equity. equity yeah. For every credit the bank is speaking, the same credits that we speak, um, for each of these credits, they have to put aside a little bit equity because they take a risk on this. Um, so if they are over levered or do too many bad credits, then you have the savings who come in and they lose the savings. That's why they have to or they have the savings on one hand, savers, Mm -hmm. And they give us the credits and because it's levered, then you, and for us, you know, it's, it's different. We, we just, we so, are not leveraging the whole thing. We are just giving out one-to-one -one also the, the equity, uh, the yeah. equity, also the, the, the investors give us money that we can lend them. So we are not, not leveraging not this yeah. lending. So, and so that's why, why should they regulate us? I mean, we, we are just doing the right as we do a lot of due diligence on the on the debts that we're giving out to the companies so that we don't lose it hopefully for our investors but we don't do it with leverage and giving um investors a little bit of flavor of some of the 
type of investments you do. Um, maybe Breitling's a good one to talk about. Uh, you know, at, at, at uni back in those days, I can remember um, economic history was one of my favourites and I, I could, I, I vaguely remember something called a Giffen good and the fact that, you know, why is it that something with the utility of a, a Rolex watch or even a Breitling or something is so valuable and it might even be more valuable if you put the price up, more p demand goes up on it where normally demand goes up as, as the price goes up. Um, can you talk about your investment thesis in, in Breitling and, and how you've gone about that? Yeah, um, Breitling, we follow since quite a while. First, we were a minority investor. Now we are a majority investor. I mean, And for people and, that don't know, these are the high-end luxury watches. Yeah, well, Breitling, hopefully everybody knows after this yes. podcast and go into shops and buy some. No. Well, I like um, Kelly Slater and I fancy myself a bit yeah, of a surfer. So, you know, so, I've, yeah. I've, I've so Breitling, it. when we looked at it and invested in it at the beginning, first of all, we it's always about the management as well. So we got a great CEO, um, George Kern is his name. He was building up at the Richmond Group, IWC, that's another mm -hmm. brand, right? Yep, sure. For thousand. Um, he was doing a great job there, but there he was kind of an employee. He made some money, but he was an employee. He was not owning it. It was owned by Richmond family, right? Um, and then we said, oh, why don't you join us? Here is a, an other family run. It was a family run. Breitling was run by a family. And they were not doing much with the brand. Actually, the brand was an aviation watch. That mm -hmm. was the only thing. There was, If you liked aviation, then they had this aviation watch. But that's it. So they were a sales-wise number 15 or 16 brand when we took it over. So pretty far back. Um so together with George Cairn, and he brought his whole team along, which he had at IWC, and um, and we, and he invested his own money. He invested quite, I mean, more or less all he has, he has invested in Breitling alongside us. And then we had a clear vision what we're going to do with Breitling. So first thing was we have to go away from just having an aviation watch. T today uh, you have not only aviation, you have, we call it sea, and the sea that's diving watches, land that's kind of going out watches, and aviation we still have. We didn't have any women watch. Now we have a full collection of women watches. Um, we were able to bring the, the, the average price on these watches from an average price of 4,000 uh, US dollar up to 6,000 during this time, <clears throat> compare this to a Rolex, which is the average price, I think, is 30000 up there. Um, and But what we also do, we call it, we had this idea, you always have to have a theme in, in, in luxury. I mean, why do people pay so much for something? It, it, it's, a, it's a feeling behind it, you know. Um, and we call it here neo-luxury, kind of... Um, we want people in the stores who are cool, who are not stuffy, luxury. You know, if you, if the funny thing is, you look at at watch stores, mm -hmm. they're almost interchangeable. The Rolex watch store and the IWC and the Philip Patek or whatever, they all look the same. Kind of you fear to go in because it all looks so tidy and luxury and don't Sterile. touch anything yep. um, and go in a Breitling watch. It's urban, it's cool, we have bars in there, you can have a drink, we have now a rollout of real, we have a global chef which, which makes special food for all of our stores in the future because we, we add on clubs, Breitling clubs, so mm -hmm. you clubbing and in the store kind of it's a complete different feeling and uh it's it's a different way of of of, of, of younger people are more attracted by this i don't think that we get the 80 years old walking in there uh maybe some young thinkers yes. who are 70 they are still walking and and find this cool but this is the place which we which we are and we and it's very successful so in four years we came from being number 15 in sales we are now number eight and for the next four years we aim to be in the top five and then we are the biggest 
brand who is singly owned. I mean, who is not either. You have Rolex, who is owned by a foundation, and then you have all the Omegas and the Philip Buttick and whatever they are owned by Richmond or by Swatch Group and so on. We're going to be the, the brand. Breitling is a feeling. It's a, uh, yeah, you will see. I mean, and it's it's already, we are halfway there. As I said, we came from number 15 to number eight in only four years. We not even have really touched the Chinese market this year. Luxury watchmakers have problems because the Chinese are retreating a little bit because the economy is not doing so well. We not even had a big business there. So actually our sales this year are up again substantially. Mm -hmm. um, we are gaining market share again, even in China, because we didn't have stores. Now we have stores. So it's we start from zero almost there. Yeah, right? and, and what do you think the logical way to exit that investment is? I think Breitling is one which could well go through the stock market, go through an IPO mm -hmm. because of the brand. Like it's yes. a, it's a, a name that people then know and you, oh, I can also own the like stock. Porsche. I have a Breitling and I own the stock. Um, most probably, not many companies, you know, only about 20% of the exits that we have is going through IPO. Majority goes either to a trade buyer or to somebody, a big conglomerate who likes to have this specific company, or sometimes another private equity firm. Like when we built a mid cap company to be a large cap, so we go in when the valuation is 800 million mm -hmm. and we build it up, the valuation is 2 billion or 3 billion, hopefully, which is nice. We make two, three times the money for our investors. Then, uh, then a large cap buyer might buy it, another one. Just to round out that sort of example of some of the companies you invest in, maybe I can get you to talk about Kindercare. I heard you talk about this earlier today and I was amazed at the comment you made about the risk that COVID proposed to the, posed to the business. So maybe you could just tell uh, clients, you know, what Kindercare is and how you have entered and, and grown that business. Yeah, Kindercare was also one of the thematics researches we did. We have seen that, um, as it says, Kindercare, it's preschool kindergartens, um, a very fragmented market in the United States. Uh, Kindercare back then was the was then already one of the largest ones. They had about, uh, I think, 200 kindergartens or something like this. Um, we like them, we like the management, and we saw a lot of tailwind because more and more mothers are want to work, so you need more and more kindergartens. And um, so we have uh, invested in it, put a great management in, um, and did a buy and build here again. So we bought lots of mom and pop kindergartens. So today we own 1,150 kindergartens, or so no, 2,100 no, 2, kindergartens. Okay. So it's a big number. We are by far the number one player in the United States. Still a very fragmented market. There are 100,000 or 30,000 of kindergartens still, mom and pop kindergartens. So the story is not finished there. Um, so we built it up over five years. And then actually, funny enough, in beginning of 2020, we wanted to sell it because we, we owned it for five years. We thought we, we there were bit as we, we thought we're going to make around three times the money, 3.1 times the money, which is good. And uh, we, we hired an investment bank to do the sales process and and the books were out and first bits came in and then COVID came out and everybody retreated and said, oh, I mean, that's definitely somebody who is uh, impaired by COVID, which it was as well. Um, so in no time, we had no sales anymore. In no time, all the kindergartens were closed, you know, and you had, uh, and it was a tough time. Good thing is that we are taking a very conservative approach in leveraging our companies, a partners group. Um, so we didn't have much debt on the company, so we could actually survive. We needed to put in a little bit equity, um, additional ones, and just make sure that we survive. Um, it's a lot of things that we have implemented there. It was tough decisions. We had to lay off a lot of people. 
we actually did and uh, just that you see that we also care for our people we have actually collected money with all the partners and partners group oh we had a, an emergency fund of 10 million put together just to make for the employees at kind at kinder care uh, you know if if you lay them off you have to help them somehow um mm-hmm. which afterwards now when the when the market turned around and now we are in full capacity where many of these employees were rehired many of these employees know knew that we have helped them in the tough times and uh, are really standing behind kinder care it's now up for sale again um two years later because we have full capacity things that we have implemented there is to make much higher qualities or really quality control so the parents really feel safe uh we have implemented a so-called dynamic pricing that you know from mm-hmm. the airlines like so, the airlines have yeah so yield the, management the more the more the kindergarten is filled up yes the more expensive it gets for the parents um now what we are implementing as well and there is a big bill out from uh, from the government i think it's 50 billion or whatever the the us government puts in for helping that mothers can work and kindergartens usually they are only you know they take the kids at nine and they give it back at three o'clock or two mm-hmm. o'clock it doesn't help if you're a working mom. So we have now installed at over at 780 of these kindergartens. We have now uh, pre and after school um, care care yep. where we you know it's just make sure that they are before parents pick them up. And we're gonna install this now on almost everybody, everyone, because it's an additional revenue stream uh, that comes in. Yep, and and. As you spoke about there, that Breitling might be an IPO. Um, when do you think the IPO window is going to open again? <laughs> That's a crystal ball. <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, well, as inflation close. comes down now, yeah. but it's not coming completely down to 2%. We don't think so uh, for a while. We think it will stick at around 4%. So the national or the, the the banks, the feds and so on, they are not really, I mean, they will not increase much more, maybe not even increase anymore, the interest rates. And we think by the end of 24, second half, fourth quarter, I think then we could see some interest rates drop again because we see recessionary you know, UK is already in recession. Germany is not far away or is in recession. US still okay, but you see now suddenly layoffs. So unemployment rates suddenly now go up. So sooner or later. And the funny thing is always that the stock markets come up when, when things are in recession. Remember back in 2009, after the financial crisis, we had the most severe recession was 2009 after the second world war mm-hmm. and we had to remember the stock markets raised about 30 percent in 2009 in the midst of the biggest recession and stock markets always look in front so forward, if they're forward looking forward looking so i guess somewhere in 2024 suddenly stock markets will be uh now this inflation is under control uh and they expect this dropping interest rates and then Stock markets go up and stock markets go up. Everybody is happy and M and A starts again and then you'll be financing. You'll be gating your fund again on the inflows. We'll be gating the fund again on the, on the inflows. inflows. Uh, <laughs> for sure, it's going to happen again. So yeah. As you travel all around the world, and you, you mentioned you've got, I think, one thousand nine hundred employees around the world, and I think you've sort of got offices in Europe, uh, offices in Southeast Asia, including Australia, and offices in the Americas, even in Brazil, I believe. Yeah. Um, in all of your travels that you do, despite all of this success, um, are Australian investors any different to those around the world? I, to be honest, I, I love to come to Australia. <laughs> it's one of my really favorite places. Well, I think the, you like the mountains. When, uh, so when, uh, it's not for I the like mountains. I like the mountains as well. Uh, but, I mean, nothing, nothing beats Switzerland anyway. But I think uh, when I retire once, I don't know when this is going to happen, but if I would retire once, 
my goal is and I have this costume is my wife as well. I want to be, <laughs> I want to go and take two pieces of luggage and just go in certain cities and just rent a furnished service flat for three months or six months just to get the feeling of the cities. And guess what? The first city I'm going to do is Sydney. Fantastic. So I'm a fan here. What I must say about Australian, what I like about Australian, they are as outgoing as the Americans. But what you say is true. The Americans are also outgoing, but a lot of sorry bullshit comes out of their mouths. They yeah. do, you know. Well, you'll, I, fit, you'll fit in in Australia until, talking like until that. Until I understood, <laughs> I was proud. Of, I was when I worked for Goldman in New York. Yes. Um, that's the story I always say. It's like they, when I came in the morning, they were always saying, nice tie. And I thought, I have a nice tie on. I'm most proud. Yeah. Until I realized they told this to everybody. Even if you had the ugliest tie, they said, nice tie. <laughs> um, in in Australia, they would tell you, nice tie if you have one. And if you have an ugly one, they tell you, ugly tie. <laughs> that's the difference. You're outspoken but you say what you think. And that's what I like. Also in negotiation and talks with supranation funds and so on, it's it's an open discussion, you know. It's mm-hmm. not like uh, beating around the bushes. You are, it's very unique, I think. I mean, the Europeans, the Swiss are very timid. They don't like to talk too much and so yes. on. Australians talk a lot, but they talk straightforward. I yeah. mean, you, you always know what you have. Well, I, I could always remember I, I spent a bit of time working in London and I'd come out of meetings and these people would be so polite to each other and so nice to each other. And, oh, yes, yes, we'll do this, we'll do this. And I came out of the meeting and I said, oh, what are we doing? And they said, oh, no, no, we're not doing that. We're just saying that to be nice, right. et cetera. And I spent a bit of time in, in South Africa or in Zimbabwe and they were the complete opposite. You know, they'd tell you exactly, yeah. you know, you, you, you knew exactly where you stood. Um, I, I was interested in, you know, one of the things that we note in the institutional market and particularly in Australia when we see a lot of private equity firms talking to us about democratizing private equity, we sometimes think that, well, hello, they're getting pressure on them from institutional investors and namely in Australia because of the market now superannuation fund being so bigger, so big, a lot of the large um, uh, institutional investors are the super funds and the large industry funds, which have done a fantastic job of both investing their money, but also marketing themselves as a very low cost solution. And therefore, you know, we see some of these private equity funds talking to us about democratizing their product. And sometimes we think, well, hold on, are you just trying to protect your two and 20 where that's under pressure at the moment? Um, I, I don't know if you see that in the Australian market much. Yeah, that's, well, first of all, two and 20 is kind of over. It's one and a half and 20. Okay. Um, and large investors, actually, they get to take co-investment opportunities for free. So you take the one and a half to, let's say, 1.9 total. Um, and the performance fee on co-invest, you don't have them. So if you give them one to, like we do one to four co-investments, usually for large clients, give us 200 million or more. So that brings you the costs down. Um, now these uh, these funds that we have in the market, they are not so much more expensive than the institutional side because otherwise they don't make sense. And keep in mind that the one and a half percent management fee that we charge on the global fund is on fully invested. Mm-hmm. The one and a half that we charge the institutional clients is on committed, but is not yet invested. So actually, you get it even cheaper. Um, now, the thing about the performance fee, this one is then taken on the performance of the fund itself, right? I mean, when the NAV goes up, then we take performance fee out of it. Urs, can you talk a little bit about vintage diversification and why that is so important? A, what is it? We've sort of talked about it a little bit. Here and, and then why it's so important in a yeah, good private equity portfolio. Vinci's diversification is, um, as I said, you should invest every year. You know, it's 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 not wise to invest two years long and then you wait four years not investing and then again two years. So the best is every year you invest something and uh, like this this year would have been very good. Next year as well. 
The problem is this year not many transactions happened. So even if you wished to invest this year, uh, because the sellers all still had these high prices and the new and we buyers say something yeah. which the seller thought is a billion, we say it's eight hundred million, it takes a while until we meet somewhere at eight fifty or whatever. Um but it's important, especially for these programs, that you really are constantly always investing in private firms during the cycle. So you, it's hard to say this was the top of the cycle, this on the bottom, and here not. So, and also, as I said, for the liquidity events later on, because we promise semi-liquid, right? Although we say we should always, if somebody wants to go out. We should have some cash available, and even if ten percent want to go out, we should have it available. If fifty percent want to go out in the same months, then it's not possible. Um, but for this, you need constant liquidity events in the portfolio itself that you can manage these liquidity streams, and this is not easy to do. Uh, our we have a big portfolio management team. There are ten mathematicians in there who do all this forecasting of these cash flows. Um, to make sure that these programs run smoothly and that you don't have to gate them, which you can never promise. But as I said, we do this now since 20 years. We have gone through GFC, we have gone through COVID, and none of our programs have ever been gated. But this has to do with vintage year diversification as well. And as, um what would what advice would you have? You've had so much experience dealing with other managers and a manager yourself, for people who are looking at private equity managers, what do you think the key things that they should look for are? I think today uh, it's a new world. You have to look if a manager is first of all doing what I say thematic research, meaning working on the company before the company is even up for sale because this Legalized insider advantage that we have is diminished today because you have these intermediaries, these M&A advisors who give you usually four weeks to come up with the final bid. So look, and only about one third of the private equity managers today do it similar. We call it thematic research. They call it different, but it's a proactive way of finding the companies. So you work on companies before these companies are even up for sale. And they might be never up for sale. You did the work for nothing sometimes. I mean, we do work in companies for nothing. But this is one big differentiator. And afterwards, you really have to be operationally active. So you need to have your Rolodex of this of these high-caliber specialists in these different industries that you can take in and put in as a chairman, put in as a specialist for digitalization, for productivity enhancement for marketing, whatever, having board members coming in who are very active with the companies because you have to create value. If you want to do two to three times the money, you need to increase the EBITDA at least 15% per year. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not just not coming. You know, it's interesting. Like if you look at a lot of people ask as well about the valuation. Is, are you having the right valuation? Yes, we have the right valuation. If I look end of 20, 2022, when, when stock markets dropped so, so dramatically, like a lot of people said, oh, you, our you fund is up 2%. You are not adjusting to the public market. That's not true. I just looked it up again. At the end of 2022, we had the portfolio company, so the average of our companies, we had it in the in the system at 14.3 times multiple, also just 14 mm -hmm. times, let's call it 14 times earnings. Same industries in the public market were also at 14 times earnings. Also down, we, we took the multiple down during, we have to, we are SEC overseen and so on. We have to take this multiple down. But the difference is our companies were growing 15.7% in EBITDA. Like for like, public firms were only growing 8%. So we outgrew the publics by 7%. So the, the multiple that we took down is actually was, if, if the average of our portfolio has a 15% higher earnings, 
our portfolio, then this is worth more, right? Even if you take the multiple down, the, the earnings multiple, you still, that's why we were kind of leveled out. We did well. And as you talked about a couple of times now, when you put specialists in your reference digitization, there's been a lot of chattering markets about artificial intelligence. Uh, and you've seen, um, you know, a lot of stocks do very well in this area. Is that something you think is going to be transformative or do you see that as a fact? No, it's a huge transformative thing. I mean, when this all came now, we were half surprised. We were expecting, but we were not expecting that it goes so fast. And uh, and and yeah, as it as it really learns itself so quick, mm-hmm. I'm astonished myself. Um, what we have done at Partners Group, we have a full-fledged team in-house to actually go through all of our portfolio companies and figure out what AI has an impact on these portfolio companies. Positive impact, tailwinds, but also headwinds, like software companies, pure sure. software companies. If you rely will, on coding will, for revenue. Yeah, um, software companies will have, I mean, we have, uh, we just sold, uh, I should not knock on this, on this yeah. door. <laughs> we just sold a software company. I think the last minute, um, we are happy that we have it off uh, a little bit lower than we had in the books because, but it's pure software companies we don't want to own anymore. It's going to be, there is so many of them up for sale. Uh, going to be a bloodbath next year on software companies in general. I mean, not each one and not IT per se, that there are a lot of companies who are actually implementing softwares or implementing uh, uh, the web or what do you call it the the, the cloud cl- yes. cloud implementing for ai so these uh, it companies who do implementations they're going to have a lot of tailwind through through ai as well so it's going to be interesting i mean and but we looked at every single company in our portfolio what's the pros and, and we have on every board now ai specialists to make sure that we don't miss the train here. Maybe if I could change gears here a little bit. I was looking recently uh, at a product you've got, PG3, which, uh, uh, if I've got it right, is an expression of an investment that you have in your family office and is investing a lot into, um, oh, the term escapes me, uh, the, the royalties right. a lot, um, and, and particularly um, music royalties. Talk to us about uh, investing in music royalties. Also, not particularly right. Also, maybe quickly, PG3 is the family office of the three founders of Partners Group. What we have done in there is that we have said, you know, my if you look at my portfolio, mm-hmm. uh, 50% is Partners Group stock, public stock, volatile stock, mm-hmm. high beta stock. Then I have a big mandate with Partners Group, about 20% of my net wealth. That when I said we went public, we said a lot of our money goes alongside our clients. That's private equity, private infrastructure. <clears throat> and my co-founders have the same. So we have said the rest of the money, we would like that this is uncorrelated to markets. And we were looking for asset classes who are uncorrelated. The first one that we found was insurance-linked securities. That's kind of catastrophe bonds and so on that mm-hmm. when you have earthquakes, if you have too many earthquakes, you lose money. If there's little earthquake, you make money, but it's not correlated to the stock markets at other risks factors. Second one was litigation finance. You finance lawsuits mm-hmm. um, here again, either you win them or you lose them. Pretty uncorrelated Not, to equity nothing markets. Nothing to do. Equity markets can go down or 30% the percent yep. of the economy, but the lawsuits either win or not have to have good lawyers to figure out to run these funds. And the third one is royalties. Royalties is an area which is a strong growth today. What you buy here is actually you buy the revenue stream of of something, being it the music or different music. Fishing uh, licenses. Fishing licenses. It could be the biggest one is pharma where you – Yep. buy for for a, a drug the intellectual you, you property the intellectual yep. property of this drug 20 years i think usually 20 or 10 or whatever and then it, it very much depends that you structure it right so you get the cash flow early on the drug um 
and then the the back cash flow you leave with the company they can make the money so it's it's a very structured thing as well at the end you can expect somewhere nine to twelve percent us on us dollar nine to twelve percent return pretty uncorrelated again because it's you know music people listen more to music in recession time than less i guess um but music royalty at time being is not so interesting too much money flow in there but this changes as well you need to understand this different royalties market and we have a team who does this and uh, for us it's an interesting area um and we invite kind of friends and family uh, into it and as australia is friends to us or to me <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, together with long reach we have a product which they kind of distribute which we manage behind it yeah. i'd be fascinated yeah. to know what your team's view of uh taylor swift re-recording um her, her back catalog and yeah. re-recording as taylor's version uh which probably i i think affects drastically that back catalog yeah yeah i mean in in the music royalties is is as i said it's it's i think it's overdone at the time being as we have very little to none in music royalties okay because the pricing are just too much money flow into this sure it, it's always when too much money goes into an asset then we like more former gas royalties um these are the two biggest part in there yeah Sure. Now, you don't have to answer this and we can get my son Joshua to edit it out if we need to. But if Wikipedia is right, um, I think you and your family are part of the giving pledge. Yeah. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So when was that? 2011 or 12, I, me and my wife, uh, we have decided that, um, you know, being a billionaire doesn't make sense, actually. Um, we should give this back. I was reading the Gospel of Wealth of Carnegie. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was once the richest man <clears throat> to Carnegie. And uh, he, yeah, it's an interesting book, Gospel of Wealth, a very small pamphlet, but he shows how he has grown to be the biggest. And his thing is take 30 years to to get your education, be 30 years a good businessman, make a lot of money, and take 30 years to give this money back again. And uh, if my son's two sons get 10% of my wealth, that's plenty. <laughs> They should do their own thing. It's not healthy to be in to to get so much money as a as a as a what do you call as a heir or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, inherit. I love the inherit, Buffett. inherit. So yeah, we decided this, and uh, we have a foundation. What's interesting in the foundation is um, I have then decided as well that whatever I shift into the foundation where we have some giving causes, education, sport, my wife, alternative medicine, research, and so on, I have said that the asset side, I want to have impactful invested. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> it doesn't need to be going into stock markets or private equity, whatever. So, and there was not a good impact investing firm back then. So I founded an own one. So it's a, it's a, sizable company in the meantime called blue earth capital mm-hmm. um and it's pretty amazing i mean i couldn't believe it we have uh, like impact debt our returns on impact debt in us dollar is 9.7 percent, and we have real impact we bring poorest people in cambodia social housing they can buy their first house with a mortgage we finance this uh we finance irrigation for poor farmers that they can finally we finance studies for poor people in mexico that they can go to university and then they pay back and you 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 earn money so it's uh and again uncorrelated 2022 when everybody is down our fund 9.7 percent we did 33 debt investments around the world in cambodia uganda and whatever we have zero default not one is not coming back and you're having and you're having impact as well and we have a huge impact you know we touch a lot of lives and uh, it's it's amazing it's uh at the beginning i didn't know if it really works so we have a team of 43 people yes around the world you know you have to work to figure out where you give these credits and so on but it's working i mean it's you can have impact and you have good returns 
which is at the end best of both worlds. Your like. cake and eat it too. Sounds good. Yeah. Urs, thank you very much. Congratulations on the success, as we were talking about earlier today. Ten years, the Australian feeder fund, uh, I think it's a little over 12% compound annual growth rate with uh, much lower volatility than the Australian market. That's terrific. Congratulations on your success and also uh, what you do in the philanthropic side of things. We really look forward to seeing you in Australia more. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Urs. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.